All right, so we've hit a, a turning point in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism. A second section uh, that is titled Deliverance. Deliverance. And actually, just in terms of if any of you have ever been, uh, uh, had, have studied the Heidelberg Catechism before, uh, previous church, uh, another denomination, it's possible that you heard the divisions of the Heidelberg Catechism as being three G's. And, and typically, you'll, you'll see it broken down into uh, guilt and then grace or gospel, let's see, guilt, oh, that's right, and then gratitude, and I, I didn't cover that at the beginning, the, the divisions and uh, the breakdown of, of Lord's Day, that was not part of the original Heidelberg Catechism, was, but was adopted uh, fairly soon after its beginning. And those are the three divisions, at least, that have, have, have more traditionally been used. Um, the uh, Reformed Church in the United States, uh, such as the Germanic Reformed Church or the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, they will typically use more, more modern uh, classifications. That's where I'm drawing from here uh, in the second category. Uh, they title Deliverance. Deliverance. And so, of course, the, the theme is all the same here, uh, but we're going to look today uh, in this turning point uh, at the questions uh, 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, and you may chuckle when I say that, uh, wondering if we will get through those, but I, I think that you'll see that we will. So let's look together at this first question, question 12. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment, both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? Now, I don't need to remind you, but I'm going to remind you, uh, re remember that these are building questions. So the questions and the answers of the Heidelberg Catechism are tied to one another. So if you were here last week and you remember what we studied last week, you can see that now they're building on this idea that we are all due punishment. Judgment day is coming. Sinners will be punished for their sin, the wrath of God to be poured out, and we are due the wrath of God both now and in eternity. And so that's where this question is leading According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve, well, that, that's based on last week's study. We understand now we're deserving of God's punishment. And we understand that it is both today, but so also in eternity. And so the question is posed, how then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? Before you read the answer, the, the expression return to God's favor is pointing back to what? What is that pointing back to? The Garden of Eden before the fall, right? So before the fall, when we as man, right, 
man was in right favor with God prior to the fall. And so that's a pointing back to. And so the answer is, God requires that His justice be satisfied. And we talked about that last week. Again, our God is a just and holy God. Justice is required. God does not sweep sin underneath the carpet, so to speak, but rather it must be judged. His justice must be satisfied. And therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full. And then it adds this clause, which is unique to the Heidelberg Catechism. Either by ourselves or by another. It's a curious addition that is added in this answer. Now, let's first start with this question. And again, I know this is is redundant from what we looked at last week, but just to tie in the two, why does God require that His justice be satisfied? Why does God require that His justice be satisfied? Answer? Well, so here's the really easy one that everyone in this room knows the answer. He's God. You say that, that's a right answer, right? But to elaborate on that, what do we know of God... What do we know of Him, His being, and so also His attributes? What do we know of God that tells us that justice is required? That justice be satisfied? He's a holy God. And by virtue of His holiness, He cannot know sin. He is apart from sin cannot know sin, and therefore, because of that, sin must be judged, right? I mean, you think about <clears throat> the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I know some of you and, and a number of your children are memorizing that this year, and when the catechism asks the question, what is God, what's, what's the answer? Does anybody recall what the answer to that is in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Yes. Right. Almost. Right? But you got the right words. So, excellent. Good job. All right. So, the beginning of of that catechism answer, uh, it says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And so, that's telling us about God. And then, the catechism says, in His being. who, Who is God in His essence? And in that, it tells us that God is... Let's see, infinite, eternal, and changeable in His being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, if you think about the way that the Westminster Divines crafted that answer, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're crafting it in categories that are linked to one another. In other words, it's right in the Divine's mind to put holiness before goodness. And the reason for that is, is that God's holiness demands that sin be judged. He is a just God, ergo, He must judge sin. And that's the idea that we're seeing here. God requires that His justice be satisfied because He is God. And therefore, to not judge, not that the justice not be satisfied would 
not make him capital G God. He would be like the, the gods of mythology. He'd be like the gods of our idolatry. He'd be like the gods of pagan religions. But he would not be the one and only true God. And because he is, then justice must be satisfied. Then how is God's justice satisfied? Now, while you're thinking about that, I want you just to think back to the garden. And back to the garden, when Eve is interacting with Satan in the form of a serpent, she says some things that are true. She says that God has said that if we sin, we will die. Now, did Eve sin? Yes. Did Adam subsequently sin? Yes. And yet, immediately, they did not die, meaning instantaneous lightning from the sky, whatever the, the case is. In a literal physical sense, they did not die in that moment, but we do know that they died spiritually, and we also know that they died physically in the sense that they would eventually die as human beings, which would not have been the case had they not sinned. So with that being the case then, how did God deal with their sin? Did God say, you know, you were doing such a good job and that serpent's so crafty, better luck next time, right? No. What did God, how did God judge their sin? All right, and where do we see that sacrifice? Yeah, we, 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 see, we see a couple of things that are hints toward what is going to point us toward eventually to the Mosaic Law and then eventually to Christ's ultimate sacrifice. But we see a couple of things in the garden. First of all, we see that God clothed them. And instead of clothing them in woven fig leaves, He clothes them in animal skins. Ergo, there was a sacrifice of an animal. And we're going to see much more about that later in Scripture. But all of a sudden there's a hint that there must be something to die by ver as a result of sin. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, what else do we see in regards to their sin? That's right. Fellowship was broken. They were forced to leave paradise. There was an angelic, a divine barrier put that they might not re-enter that. What else? Pain, consequences of uh, life that they had not known before. And of course, as we've said, death. What else? God pronounced their punishment. So, Though there was a sacrifice made, then God explains to them the consequences of their sin and the punishment that we read for the man, well actually for the serpent, 
for the man and for the woman. And all of this is giving us an early picture. But as we go through, through Scripture, we see more clearly what God requires. And eventually, the writer of Hebrews, who of course was writing after the cross of Christ, helps us have a much better picture, a much clearer picture of what all of those sacrifices were pointing toward, right? The writer of Hebrews said what? Without the shedding of blood, no, no atonement or no remission of, for sin. And so of sin or atonement for sin. And so the idea there is that God's justice must be satisfied. It is satisfied in the form of death. So Eve was right in that sin against God resulted in death. Yet God used the death of a sacrifice, which we see repeatedly, to atone for that sin, so also pointing all the way to the cross of Christ, who was the once offered, complete, and final sacrifice offered for our sin, which all of the sacrifices pointed to. How is escape from punishment different from being justified is not guilty. Did you notice that in the answer? It says, or rather in the question, how then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? Does anyone ever truly escape no not really in fact if you think about this and here's again and i know i know all of you understand this but here is one of the great confusions of modern evangelical christianity is that many christians do not understand that god's wrath must, God's justice must be satisfied. God's wrath must be poured out for the penalty of our sin. That's the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the bearing of God's wrath by God the Son. And so we did not quote-unquote escape from God's wrath, but rather we stand before God as justified. Big difference. God's sin was not swept out of the corner. You didn't run fast enough. You didn't try hard enough. Rather, God, our sin was imputed to Christ. His righteousness imputed to us. And so we stand before God in His sight by God's grace through faith as righteous only because we are justified as righteous. And so why is paid in full important regarding God's justice? The answer here says, Therefore the claims of this justice must be paid in full. Why is paid in full important regarding God's justice? That's right. 
Big difference. That's exactly right. I don't know if, if you could hear uh, Eric, but he said our, our debt was not erased. Our debt was paid. That, that's a big difference. It was paid by Christ. He, he quoted the first part of Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin, you, we've all worked so hard, haven't we? <laughs> and so for our wages, we get death. The wages of our sin is death. And yet, the free gift of God, what's the rest of Romans 6.23? The free gift of God is eternal life. In what you do, and how hard you work, and how much you merit it, right? Wrong. Throw things at me. No. Don't really throw things at me. No. Only in Christ. Only in Christ, which is why the last part of this answer on the Heidelberg Catechism should just leave every Christian going, What? What? What are you kidding me? No one can atone for my sin but the blood of Jesus. Nobody can stand and bear the holy wrath of God but Jesus. Are you kidding me? You think it's going to be somebody else? At least that's what I think. When I read that, right? That should be our reaction, either by ourselves or by another. Well, that is a big problem, isn't it? And so, can we make this payment ourselves? Can we make this payment ourselves? Don't you love the way these questions are leading us down this path? <laughs> and and is Brandon, Brandon's not in here, is he? Brandon said, I thought this was written in German. What German says, certainly not. So, certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. So, I don't know what it is in German, right? Um, but uh, it was also written in, in Latin, so maybe that's it. I don't know. But in our English translation, it is, no way Jose, right? Not really, but certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Now, why, why would it be written in that way? Th think about it that way. What, what is the way that this, this, why is the answer answered in this way? Well, think about it. First of all, you might say, well, why can, why can I not, why can I not just turn over a better leaf? Why can't I just try harder, do a little better, you know, uh, went to the bookstore, found a good self-help book, and I'm turning over a new leaf today. I mean, this is the new John, right? Why is that not good enough? Why can we not satisfy God's justice? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, even if from this point forward I could live a morally perfect life, I got a problem with yesterday. That's good. That's right. Yeah. What else? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's out of love for self, isn't it? Yeah, that's that is a, that's an excellent perspective. Yeah. So in what ways does man typically try? I mean, think about this, and maybe you've got some personal examples, but I'm really also thinking about just the world in which we live. If 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 someone is confronted with this and 
Uh, I mean, for example, I was talking to a guy that goes to an, an, another church in our community uh, a couple of months ago, and we're just casual conversation, and, uh, and he, he said, and I, I'm, I'm not kidding, he, he said, you know, well, I'm in, in, ho- hopefully that when I get to the pearly gates, uh, my good outweighs the bad. And I went. Yeah, I mean, I'm just like, hmm. This is a struggle for me because I'm getting ready to lay the gospel on you, dude. And uh, I thought you believed it. And uh, so, I mean, just even today, within this year, I've encountered, I know you have, what are ways in which man tries to, 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 to uh, pay God for our sin? All right. Yeah, motivated by I, I need you. To, grace sounds great, right? So this is the this is the Roman Catholic do, doctrine. Grace sounds wonderful, but we're going to change the definition of grace to add works, because I, I need something. I need something to do to earn this, right? Or to at least to show I deserve it. What else? What are ways today where man typically tries to pay God for their sins? Yeah, you see this. So when I was in, in business, I would encounter this a lot. There would be uh, men or women, for that case, who may have lived lives a certain way, got to, typically it was around midlife, got to midlife, looked back, didn't like what was in the rearview mirror, and so then they would dedicate themselves to altruistic purposes. When, when I left business and uh, began to pursue education and ordination, I had a number of people that I had done business with that would call me and, and say something along the lines, you know, well, fine, you know, at least you're getting to do something worthwhile. At least you're, get, you're getting to, to go and, and do something that has meaning and purpose and, and, and that sort of thing. And don't get me started on Christian vocation. But the idea was, is this altruistic type of, of work. And so, of course... As, as sometimes people will say to me, you know, well, you got a connection with the man upstairs. No kidding. Had that said to me once this last year. You've got a connection with the man upstairs, so I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> right? Uh, I, I go to a church full of people with a connection with the man upstairs, but that's another discussion for another day. What else? What are other ways that man typically tries? Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah. If you couldn't hear Susan, she said rationalization and manipulation of Scripture. If I don't like what Scripture says, then I'm going to manipulate it to justify what I think or my lifestyle or whatever, whatever the case is. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great example. Well, even though you're not talkative, we could go on for hours, couldn't we? Uh, how do we then increase our debt every day? How do I? How do I increase my sin debt every day? 
<laughs> well, I'm sure that it has the idea uh, that we're sinners by nature. David said, I was born in iniquity. Um, but, but, but practically speaking, yeah, it, it is, is because I am a sinner by nature, I'm also evidencing that sin by my sinful thoughts, by my sinful words, by my sinful deeds. And, and so here it is, another day and whoops, yeah, it's not even, well, it is, it's 10 o'clock. And I have probably already sinned today, and, and you have too. And so the idea is that we're increasing this debt on and on and on. Incidentally, and I added on the scripture references on your, your handout, I, I, I love this. So in the tradition of the Lord's Prayer, this is, I'm, I'm running off into left field. This would be left for you, right? And there is no additional charge for this. But how many of you, when the first time you visited Covenant, you were praying the Lord's Prayer and you're like, what? They got it wrong. It's trespasses, not debts. Just curious. How many had prayed trespasses, right? So, so the, the expression trespasses comes from the uh, King James translation of the Lord's uh, succinct version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke. And then it was picked up and, and popularized by uh, the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Book of Pr- Common Prayer. Uh, so if you come from any background of tradition from that, Episcopalian, Methodist, uh, of course, North American Anglican, and, and so on, um, that's what's in the, the Book of Common Prayer, is that version. Uh, it became also popular uh, among, uh, well, other denominations. <laughs> less educated other denominations, um, not to be mentioned, uh, because, well, that's what everybody says. And so that's the the prayer. Uh, The traditional Presbyterian prayer is quoted from the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew, it's translated, and in the Greek, it is actually uh, the word debt, a financial word. Uh, why, why would Jesus, when teaching His disciples to pray, why would He use a financial term like debt and debtor? Well, for exactly why we're looking at it today. It's a beautiful picture. and It's why in our, our tradition, why I'm thankful that we, we use that version of the Lord's Prayer. Because when we're praying it, I'm saying, Oh Lord, it's, a, it's like one of you said, I, you know, it's a new day. I got up today. And, and I, I have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. And, and I, have, I have added to the debt account uh, of my, my sinfulness. Forgive me of my debts. And so help me to forgive those who have sinned against me by virtue of also compiling debts. How many times should I forgive my neighbor? <laughs> yeah, a large multiple. <laughs> right? All right. So moving back to the topic at hand, uh, question number 14. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? Answer? You got to get this one. Everybody at one time. Thank you. Okay, good. No. Well, now let's elaborate. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. 
Isn't that a brilliant explanation? Even if you find the best person that you know, even if it is that person you think, I'm confident that guy has not sinned since 1976. Still, he does not satisfy the perfect holiness of God. He is not, she is not righteous enough. And so it's impossible. What does the catechism emphasize regarding another creature paying our debt? Answer, impossible. But not just because they are unrighteous. I love, and this is really, this is theologically robust, isn't it? I love the way that it elaborates on, and it's pointing to, of course, the divine nature of Christ, right? And, and so it's, it's sort of a hinting of what is to come. So first of all, God's not going to punish another creature for what another creature has done. Secondly, we'll call it the cosmic consequence, which is what? No mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin. That's part one. No normal, one who is merely man, can bear God's wrath. And even if, theoretically, even if there were a man or woman who could, in fact, bear God's wrath, what's the second part say? and deliver others from it. There's no one that can bear the wrath of God, but even if theoretically there were some person that could do that, they can't then vicariously deliver others from God's wrath. It's a brilliant picture of what is understood as what we well, it's what we've studied before in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, right? God made Him who knew no sin to be sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's this double imputation of our sin and Christ's righteousness. Yes. Well... Because what it's trying to do, and keep in mind a catechism was originally um, written to teach children to, right, well, but to teach children, so also to teach believers new to the Reformed faith. It's coming, and keep in mind, in, in historically speaking, um, this is a country that was coming out of and still had a dominant presence of the Roman Catholic religion. And so by virtue of that, they've got to go all the way back to the, the baby steps, so to speak, of, of our sin and our need for atoning, you know, an atoning sacrifice. And so, so the, the reason it's using that, we could, you and I would call that, that is a leading question or a leading statement. And, and that's true, but in the sense of the catechism, it's not wrong to lead. It would lead an un, let's say there's an unbeliever who is who has never heard the gospel, and and you you want to explain to them um, John three sixteen. But if that unbeliever says, "Well, I've lived a good life, and I give to charity, 
and I, I really don't think I'm a sinner, is John 3.16 going to mean anything to that person? So you almost have to go back to, to, your, to your point, almost back to, to that, that baby step, and, and it's throwing it out there as theoretical. Think about this. Do you, do you really think that, that you could atone for your sins? Well, see, the self-righteous person does. Even if they thought that they were a sinner, they would say, well, maybe I can. Or, or maybe my grandmama, she, she was the best. Maybe she could. Is that helpful? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it could. So, so, you know, I mean, I'm not going to get into rewriting, um, you know, the out of our catechism that, that stood since 1563. Uh, but, yeah, it is. It's, that's exactly, that, that's a the case. That's a good way to express it. Yeah, even that which would be self-evident, it, it's still building the case. That's a great expression. Yeah, that, that's all. It's not, to your point, Phil, or at least I think where you're going, it, it's, it's not proposing that it, it, it is possible. What if it was proposing that you could understand from Scripture that though not possible, it is allowed by God. God will allow someone who could True. But, but look around you, you're not going to find that person. Yeah, no, I think... <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a great perspective. It's that leading question that, that should lead us to saying, nobody here and not me, who, who, is, who, who could it be? Who, who, who could be the one? And I think you're, you're exactly right because the reason why I think you're exactly right is look at question 15. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? See, I mean, this is the brilliance of, of the Haldeberg Catechism and, it, and it's connecting, it, it's leading us in this to say, I'm not good enough and everybody I know isn't good enough and if no one can bear God's wrath, and if no one can deliver me from God's wrath, then I need a mediator. And I need a mediator, I need a deliverer who can rescue me. In other words, I need a mediator who can deliver me. Who should we then look for? And that's again, going back to Susan's point, I think that's the example of building a case. I think we're seeing that. You're supposed to be going. What you're thinking is, I already know the gospel. This is overly elementary. I've got it. Why are they taking eight questions to get me to the essence of the gospel? The answer is, praise God, by God's grace, you are a believer. But do you not know that we live in a day and age, in fact, well, at least for the last 2,000 years, 10,000 years, 15,000. I'm not exactly how old, how many years have passed since Adam and Eve were in the garden, but it's a long time. Pretty sure that what it is doing is showing us that exactly as your neighbor does not see himself or herself as a sinner, even if you get to him to the point 
of confessing that they are a sinner, it becomes an argument of a weights and balances. Have I done enough when I get to the pearly gates? Or is my bad going to outweigh that? All of this is nothing new, but it is pointing us to show that we are indeed helpless, must have a mediator to deliver us. One who is a true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. I mean, it's just, it's a soft toss. It's just setting us up. We're all riding. We're like, it's Christ. It's Christ. We're headed that way. And He's taking us in baby steps to get there. Now, with the little bit of time that we have, what, when I say mediator, when it says mediator here, what is a mediator? Okay, it's a, it's a go-between, uh, someone who in, in a legal sense uh, would be able to argue your case between you and the judge, right? So when we think of Christ as a mediator, how does He satisfy that definition? How, how was Christ a mediator? Yeah, as our, our shorter catechism uh, says, uh, uh, um, uh, the, rede- the, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, uh, became man. I'm trying to remember this. And so was and continueth to be God in, man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And the idea of that is exactly what we see in Philippians chapter 2, specifically verses 9 through 8 through 11 or 8 through 12, where Paul is walking us through this picture of he who humbled himself by becoming man, so also is he who is exalted forever. And so this idea of the God-man, Jesus Christ, in two distinct natures, yet one person forever. And so reconciliation between God and man is made by one who can, in fact, bear the cosmic wrath of God, one who can deliver us vicariously through Himself, one to whom all of those sacrifices, starting in the Garden of Eden, going all the way through the temple period and onward, pointing to Christ. And so Christ is, in fact, God and man. And that is where we are going to leave it today. Let me pray for us. God, we are the guilty. We are the ones who cannot atone for our sins. And even our best efforts are polluted garments, dirty rags. And yet, in the fullness of time, you sent your Son to be born of a woman under the law, that we might be redeemed, that we might be bought back by the life 
death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is fully man and fully God, so atoned for our sin upon the cross, died in our stead, yet rose again from the dead on the third day, that we might have victory in Him, that we might have life everlasting. And so we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all of these questions are pointing us to, and in whom, and through whom, and to whom we gather together on the Lord's Day, this first day of the week, the day of His resurrection, where we as His disciples gather together to worship. And so we pray that you would prepare our hearts even now for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.